Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at EdSurge. Which book is assigned most often in colleges around the world? In other words, what is the most taught title in all of higher ed? That's something that hasn't really been knowable, since no one's been able to collect every syllabus out there and, and analyze the reading lists on them to see what pops as the top ranked. But this month, a new tool came out that starts to make it possible to answer questions like this. It's called the Open Syllabus Project, and it's run out of a public policy center at Columbia University. Its leaders have gathered more than six million syllabi from around the world and, and made it possible to do searches across them. But, you know, basically we um, just go out and sort of on the public web, get these documents, and, um, and then each of them kind of represents sort of one professor's sort of little view on how to, how to teach something, right? And kind of what matters, what's important, sort of what's the kind of sequence between the different readings, how they relate to each other. And um, in the past, we sort of encountered these documents in sort of a one-off basis as students. Um, but now we have this sort of huge sea of, you know, about six million of them. And it just kind of makes it possible to sort of start to kind of like analytically try to sort of understand the whole sort of teaching and learning system all at once. That's David McClure, uh, a grad student at the MIT Media Lab, who's helping to build the Open Syllabus Project. McClure also created an interactive visualization called a galaxy view that, that shows almost every text in the collection as dots on an interconnected map of knowledge. The larger the dot on the map, the more often it's assigned in a course. Basically, when two books are close together, it means they tend to show up in the same types of courses in the, in the data set. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I think important to say too that, you know, it's sort of a, a lot of fidelity is lost in that process, right? And sort of it's kind of a, it's almost more of like a intuition pump than sort of a, you know, kind of a, a piece of evidence, right? Um, but what it does give is sort of a, a broad sense of sort of what books are kind of um, similar and dissimilar and sort of how the different kind of big blocks of the academy sort of interact with each other. Um, so yeah, so basically, you know, it kind of gives a rough approximation of, you know, which individual books are similar and which sort of fields and subfields are, are more and less sort of similar. Um, yeah, and for me, I think the kind of the, the really cool thing is sort of, um, I think it suggests sort of uh, these kind of structural differences in the way that disciplines are put together, right? Um, so for example, like the, there's an environmental studies sort of cluster on the graph, which is really, really sort of tight and cohesive, right? Um, even though the individual documents come from lots of different fields, right? So it's as if environmental studies kind of has this sort of a really kind of coherent sort of reading program, but it's sort of drawn from lots of different sort of other disciplines. Um, whereas something like history or political science are, are sort of much more kind of scattered and broad in the layout, right? So it's like they have a number of different kind of um, distinct subfields more kind of spread out across sort of the, the sea of knowledge, right? This really is a new kind of window into higher ed and one that its designers hope can be used as a kind of ranking of teaching materials. Each book in the system is assigned a score of 1 to 100 that measures its influence in classrooms. The director of the Open Syllabus Project, Joe Karaganis, says he hopes it becomes a tool that professors can use to prove their value to their bosses and help them get promotion or tenure. You know, in a sense, you value what you can measure, and we hope that one of the outcomes of this new metric will be uh, a way of incentivizing the production of more and better teaching-facing materials. But this plan may be better in theory than in practice. Because in, in my search through the system, most of the popular authors on syllabi are, are long dead, or race retired. It seems like it just takes a long time for a book to work its way onto a large number of syllabi. All right, so I never said what the most popular text in higher ed is. It turns out, it's The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. 
And as a writer, I love this. I had to read that in college. Um, still use it as a reference. Number two is another writing book, A Writer's Reference by the late Diana Hacker. Number three, a calculus textbook. It's just, its name is Calculus by James Stewart, a Canadian mathematician who passed away in 2014, from what I can tell on Wikipedia. Ranked four is Human Anatomy and Physiology. Sounds like a good pre-med text by Elaine Marieb, and published back in 1989. And number five on the list is Plato's Republic. Couldn't get much further back than that. So these are not exactly unknown authors waiting to be discovered or hunting for acclaim. Actually, some professors worry the collection could actually have harmful side effects. One potential problem is that the system could lead to less diversity in classroom assignments as people just look to the data set for guidance. John Becker, a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, told me that maybe some marginalized texts would get even more lost because a department decides not to adopt it because it didn't get a high score. So what does Joe Karaganis say to that concern? Yeah, we've heard that from a number of people who've encountered the project uh, for the first time. And um, I, mean, I guess I have two thoughts on that. One is that the main force for standardization of classes is really uh, textbooks. So um, you know, that is not something we'll have any impact on one way or the other. Uh, with respect to teachers or faculty who are coming to look for uh, materials for their classes in which they're composing a sort of complex syllabus with many texts. Uh, the tool, I think, is really what you bring to it. If you want to, you know, if you, if you have a kind of lazy approach that you just want the quick answer to what the most frequently co-assigned texts are, um, you know, our data can certainly show you that. If you're interested in digging down into some of the lower reaches of co-assignments and looking for some of the more interesting and maybe less expected connections, then we can support that too. So, I, you know, I'm um, somewhat agnostic on that question. Uh, I think uh, it will be useful to creative faculty and to lazy faculty alike. <laughs> so you don't you don't feel like the tool will will create that either way that people will just kind of do what they're doing anyway. So I think there is a you know powerful pressure across some parts of the university system to standardize curricula, but mm -hmm. I think that's that that almost that takes the form of textbook teaching, not um, standardization around the kinds of uh, you know. Uh, custom or bespoke classes that uh, that I think that faculty member was referring to, and that you know most many faculty and especially the humanities and social sciences treat as sort of the norm. A bigger downside of the system, though, could be in the political realm. When the Open Syllabus Project released an earlier version of this database a few years ago, it had about a million syllabi. Right-wing commentators were were quick to point out that the third most taught title was Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, and then I'll rank sixth. But they flagged it as evidence of extreme liberal bias in the academy. Well, uh, I learned last time around that there was no, uh, no countering these arguments. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the, the, the data didn't matter at the end of the day. It was uh, people looking for a way to plug our you know, neutral tool into their argument about the left-wing leanings of the academy. So we have much richer data now and can, you know, if, if there were ever a need to debunk uh, arguments about the role that Marx plays in the canon, again, we could do so. So the Communist Manifesto is a very widely assigned text. And uh, as I've been arguing for a number of years now and can now show, <laughs> it's widely assigned because it's widely assigned across many fields. And that's a very unusual 
characteristic for a text. You know, most fields, most texts are assigned in one field or two, maybe. Um, so you're saying shows up, shows up across four or five. It sounds like your argument is that it's not being taught as a go do this philosophy. It's being taught in other contexts. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's the, the, the first, uh, the, the sort of the first position to take in this art, this, this debate is that people are not assigning, um, works as endorsements of those works, but uh, often to, to criticize them as well. I asked McClure about this idea as well. I guess I wonder if there's any potential downside from having this kind of collection of data. Yeah, yeah. So I think in the wrong hands, absolutely. So this is why we're, we're super careful to, to never actually publish the documents, right? And you're totally right. So there's, you know, there's sort of a, a certain culture on the political right of trying to kind of out faculty on the left that they think are sort of teaching things that they don't like politically. Um, which for me is super troubling, and that's kind of why we, we don't actually publish the documents, right? So we don't sort of put them out there in a way that you could go and sort of search for some keyword and kind of find a class that, you know, might be associated with one scholar. So that I think could be problematic, and we, we don't do that for exactly that reason. But we're kind of curious in these sort of emergent kind of overall sort of connections that come out of huge sort of collections of the documents. Um, but yeah, but I think sort of um, we really are careful never to sort of make it possible to kind of filter down too too closely in the data where you could sort of attach kind of, you know, um, individual sort of scholars or faculty members to different books and stuff like that. The system lets you see top-ranked books by campus. And it's interesting to poke around and, and look at what's popular where. The most assigned text uh, where I went to undergrad at Princeton University is Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. It's kind of highfalutin. Uh, at Harvard, uh, the most assigned text is Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, a more kind of policy-oriented book. At Berkeley, number one is The Communist Manifesto, and second place is Intermediate Accounting by J. David Spiceland. At one of the largest community colleges, Northern Virginia Community College, the, the top assigned book, um, according to the database, is All is Quiet on the Western Front. At Liberty University, a religious, religious university, the top book assigned is Manual for Writers of Research Papers, Theses, and Dissertations by Kate Turabian, followed in number two by God, Marriage, and Family, Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation by David Jones. You know what, though? It turns out the first thing most professors do when they get to this collection is search for their own book and see how popular it is. Oh, I think that's the first step for any academic coming to this thing. It's a, you know, there'll be the vanity search and curiosity searches of friends and you know, trying to, people looking to confirm their in intuitions about what's frequently assigned. One esteemed author who seems to have done a vanity search just like that was Greg Manicu, who is the author of the most assigned economics textbook on the planet. He actually has the top three econ textbooks. And on his blog this week, he, he linked to our article about the Open Syllabus Project and, and wrote, quote, What authors appear on the greatest number of syllabuses of college courses? Shakespeare is number one, and Plato is number two. I show up at number 22, he, he writes of his place in this syllabus universe. It's pretty impressive. So I was curious to hear from one of these scholars who came up at the top of the rankings. So I reached out to the author of the most assigned history textbook out there, James Rourke. He's an emeritus professor of history at Emory University. I was able to reach him on his cell phone. How does it feel to be to be that that influential. <laughs> to be highly ranked. <laughs> yeah, well, to be that influential, well, right? Because it's it, not just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 feels, it feels good. I mean, you know, it's, textbook writing is a very different project from, from, from uh, monographs and the kind of work historians do most of the time. Um, right. You're not trying to impress your, your colleagues 
you're you're not writing for a small historical audience. Uh, you're you're trying to help 18 year olds who are quite likely in a course they wish they weren't in uh, learn American history and to do well and perhaps even get a little excited by it. It's important also somewhere in here to say um, some obvious caveats about this collection. All of these syllabi are in English. So obviously there's much of the world left out and more of higher ed out there that's not included in this selection. Also, some syllabi aren't on the public web, which is what this is looking to because the, the professors haven't shared them. So there are gaps and kind of blind spots in this data. So what has surprised the developers as they put this collection together? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, so I think one sort of, um, I'm not sure if I'm surprised, I guess maybe a little bit dispiriting is sort of how dominant sort of the traditional sort of white male canon is in the list. Um, you know, it's still, mm. uh, you know, for all the kind of um, questions about, you know, whether the classics are still taught, they, they seem to be in this data set, which um, uh, was, you know, again, I guess maybe not surprising, but, you know, you sort of, you maybe want to see a little bit sort of less of that overall. Um, in terms of the sort of the, the galaxy kind of graph, uh, I think I was kind of struck by um, really how distinct the sciences are. So really the sciences in that way out kind of form a very sort of discrete sort of separated off um, kind of unit. Um, so yeah, so I was kind of curious and interested in sort of the kind of interstitial sort of zone between the sciences and sort of the social sciences and humanities and trying to sort of see what kind of fell in that middle zone there. So I think um, that's kind of one of my interests here is sort of like what, what are sort of the kind of bridge, bridging texts or sort of um, texts that kind of form connections between fields that are generally pretty far apart. Have you looked your, uh, I don't know if you have any publications, but have you looked yourself up to see if you're being, being <laughs> I taught? Have. I'm definitely not not important enough to show up there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I looked up all, all my all my old professors and, and yeah. No, it's it's always great to sort of you know see see where things land. <laughs> and my dad's a, um, a a history professor, so I always look him up when I <laughs> when I first sort of drop in the data. So yeah. <laughs> this has been the Ed Surge on Air podcast. You can read more about the Open Syllabus Project and, and see what this network map of higher ed looks like at edsurge.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen, or better yet, take a minute to give us a rating, which helps others find the show. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.